Thank you. Thank you. This is This Immerse, is immerse the, podcast the podcast and book. We are delighted, are delighted to, have to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. I'm Anea Lockwood. Immerse. Immerse. Paco Underhill. It's Dyer. No. I think I could read that better. <laughs> If I can make you both shake and nod your head at the same time, I've succeeded. So says Paco Underhill. Inspired by the methodologies of urbanist William H. White, and having lived in a multitude of cities around the world as the son of a diplomat, retail space doctor, best-selling author of Why People Buy, Paco Underhill founded the first iteration office of his consultancy, EnviroCell, in 1977. Paco and I met in the 1970s in New York through his longtime friend, composer, sea captain, Rip Heyman. Also check out Rip's Immerse interview. At the same time, poet Jerome Rothenberg and I formed the New Wilderness Foundation. Paco Underhill became the chairman of the New Wilderness Foundation board. His balanced, clear head and wry wit helped build the organization and community. He's become well-known as an author and authoritative consultant on the psychology of shopping. I interviewed Paco in 2019 at the Ear Inn. He shares his views on habits and trends of the immersive material world. She made three paces through the room. She saw the water lily bloom. She saw the helmet and the plume. Charlie, do you recognize that? That's the BBC warm-up from the 1930s. It contains all of the sounds of the English language. I remember it was in a manual, a small manual that included the most important instruction, which was to not allow the person in the sound booth to have a ballpoint pen because the clicking sound would be doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that quote was there and then that warning. Okay. So Charlie, what is your book about? The book is called Immerse and it concerns uh, immersive experience and the design of immersive experience. The reason I was interested in interviewing you is because I thought that you observe people in situations and relationship between situations in which folks want to capture their attention or their money or somehow interact with them is, uh, is something that you spend a lot of time looking at in detail. Uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in how you see immersivity, you know, how, how it is created. One of the things that we are looking for in the broader world of physical design, and I might point out cyber design, is a better matching of art and science. And that is the degree to which we can understand how people process and how people move is a very important part of making environments that are either painless or enjoyable for whatever process that you're trying to design for. And part of what is interesting, Charlie, is that while there are a series of biological concepts that govern how we process and how we move, that one of the interesting issues is that the act of watching how people interact with spaces 
is one of the ways that we see the evolution of our species. Because what made a great space in 2000 and what makes a great space in 2019, while there are some factors that have stayed the same, there are a number of factors that continue to evolve. So do you want me to start with the factors that stay the same? That sounds like a great place to begin. In general here, 90% of the world is right-handed. And that means that almost every space tends to work better with a counterclockwise circulation pattern. What that means is it puts the dominant right hand closest to whatever it is that you're asking people to interact with, okay? And whether you're talking about a gallery or you're talking about a museum or you're talking about whatever, that counterclockwise flow is a really critical one. Second thing is a biological constant is understanding the difference between how someone sees at 20, how someone sees at 40, and how someone sees at 60 or later. Because as we age, the lenses in our eyes yellow, and the way we respond to changes in the context of our physical environment tend to be different based on that age. The problem is that whether we look at museum design, we look at packaging design, we look at retail design, we look at airport design, often the person sitting at the CAD CAM screen doing the actual design work or the details on that design work, which are critical, tends to be under age 30. And if you're Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever, you know who your target market is, but if you're an airport or a museum or whatever, you don't know what your target market is. So that there are three factors that need to be looked at. One is how do I respond to downshifting? Meaning that if I am being asked to go from inside to outside, or I'm being asked to go through a gate, or I'm being asked to go through any form of doorway, portal, be it inside or outside, there is generally some gear change that happens. The second function is the degree to which someone responds to their peripheral vision either expanding or contracting. So that the focus of our vision and the degree to which we are processing the edges as opposed to focusing on what we're looking at. And the third issue is responding to changing light. And we can do that, again, in an exhibit design. We can do it at an airport. We can look at it at an airport. We can look at it at a store. We can look at it in a variety of different ways. The issue is for people who are aging, those three things often take a step, two, or three longer than it might if you were younger. There are also cues to help us be able to negotiate that change of space. And those come from physical barriers. They come from changes in texture underneath our feet that give us the signal that there is a change happening and that our bodies need to respond. So that's the visual piece of the puzzle. Historically, some of the major differences in design were based on men and women. And there's some gross generalities here. One is men were programmed to be hunters or fishermen, that they were rewarded for their success. And they were often rewarded for the speed at which that success was achieved. Women were gatherers and were programmed often to get more pleasure from the act of looking. And that the act of looking became a very important part of their ability to process an immersive experience. Now, in 2019, 
some of those gender differences have shifted. And it isn't that men aren't hunters anymore or women aren't gatherers anymore, but given the, the broader impact of birth control, education, what, whatever, that some of those differences aren't so much between gender as they are between generations. So if we think of it, a baby boomer, Generation Z, Gen X, what, whatever, all of them have had different characteristics of how they respond to our immersive experience. The other biological constant is that most of us like our spouses and we adore or care for our children. And that therefore the clusters that people move in have been responded to what that process is. What is interesting is in the context of a global world, that within the context of, of Western culture, you had a series of normative states. You had symbol moving alone. You had somebody moving with friend, which was generally somebody of the same gender. You had someone moving as a couple, which was a man and woman, or even a same-sex couple, but clearly there's a romantic uh, attachment there. And then the movement of a nuclear family. That has been challenged in part by both the Hispanic world and by the Middle Eastern world, where the clustering of people ends up being eminently more complex. So, for example, in a Hispanic-themed mall, the number of people coming in in a three-generational group, where there is a grandmother, a grandfather, there's a father and a mother and their children, is much more common than it might be if you were in Duluth, Minnesota. If you're in Dubai or you're in Bangkok, the number of people who are moving in an extended family cluster so for example, my buddy who lives in Dubai, when he goes on vacation, the vacation party that he travels with is 19 people. And that includes his wife, but it also includes his son, their wives, their children, servants, and sometimes some other domestic attachment. It's been interesting in that broader world of immersive experiences, for example, that the Middle Eastern family tends to want to go to places where somebody can rent them a block of interconnected rooms as opposed to one room or one room with another room connected to it the way we would in the context of our own culture. So those biological constants are globally affected by a series of different propositions. One is density. So that if I'm in New York City, or I'm in Delhi, or I'm in Tokyo, there's a density and a proximity to people that, that governs people's interrelationship to each other. And the more dense you are, the more manners there are about dealing with that density. As, a, as opposed to going to Dallas, Texas, or going to Johannesburg, where the density is nowhere near the same concentration. That's a very important factor. Second factor governing that is temperature issues. So if you think of the difference between Helsinki, where you have extreme cold, but you may have extreme heat, there's a way in which people move and react to changing temperature, as opposed to someone who lives in a tropical climate or lives in a temperate zone, where yes, we may have air conditioning, but the actual temperature variation is much narrower than it is in other places. And that also governs that process. And then the third one, which is a very interesting one, Charlie, 
is the difference between the economic status of people. I could take a city like Helsinki or a city like Tokyo, where the economic variation between the very rich and the very poor is relatively narrow. Whereas if I go to a city like Sao Paulo, or I go to a city like Delhi, or I go to a city even like Shanghai now, that the extremities between the very rich and the very poor create a class structure that often governs our level of comfort about sharing spaces. Is this where you wanted to go? This is totally where I wanted to go. Okay. Because... All right, backing up. If you ask me what are the change factors, I have five of them that are really critical and come up in every job that I do. First is the recognition that our visual language is evolving faster than our spoken or written word. Thanks to the internet, thanks to whatever. The way we see and the connection between our eyes and our brains. People can ask, well, what about you know language in our hearing? But part in a shrinking world, we are using eyes to be able to translate as opposed to listening and translating simply because the language barriers are eminently more uh, formidable than the barriers between vision. Some of that relates to the use of icons, the reuse of symbols, the acceptance of symbols, and the degree to which we are able to process an electronic message thanks to our phones and television and movies and everything. Second is the changing status of women. The greatest impact on our species since we tamed fire is birth control. And that has fundamentally shifted the relationship between sex and procreation. It's, it has also fundamentally changed the application of gender to occupation. So I can look at, uh, you know, 1950, we can look at the movies of Harvard Law School and they had less than 2% of the class was female. If we look at the broader world of law school or medical school or dental school or pharmacy school, the degree to which women often dominate. In, in fact, if we look at institutions of higher learning, that 60% of those attendees tend to be female. Females generally have less issues with learning disabilities. They have less issues with drug and alcohol use. And our society is responding to the fact that the number of professions that are muscle and coordination related are declining. Doesn't mean that we don't need, that muscle isn't there, but that muscle and coordination function is something that is shrinking. So that if I look at a third of the predator pilots flying drones over Afghanistan are nerdy women who have the manual skills, they've grown up with video games or whatever, have the focus and the ability to do it. There's nothing about muscle in being able to deliver a thousand pound rocket within 10 feet of whatever your intended target is. We also know that in the world of consumption, that historically we sold women clothes, food, and cosmetics. In 2019, women are the single most important buyers of technology on the planet. Because unlike men, they're not fascinated with what's inside. They're interested in the appliance nature of it. How is this going to affect the way I live or do my life and make 
challenges that I face easier. Men tend to buy for themselves, women buy for themselves, but they also buy for their children, and they tend to be the purchasing agents for their parents, so that's two. Third issue here is the role of time. In the world in which we function in, our ability to multitask is one of the earmarks of our success and is, I might point out, one of the differences between generations. So I can look at a 12-year-old who is sitting in the kitchen. They have got earphones on. They are eating something, and they're doing their homework at the same time, and the television is going on in the background. It would drive you and I crazy, but they can do it. But we move through our lives with a, with a clock ticking inside our heads. And one of the goals, often of an immersive in environment, is to get you to either forget that clock or to recalibrate that clock. That said, one of the issues in the world of immersive design is recognizing that there are many more people who are interested in a dip than a swim. So if I look at the average time someone spends at Macy's, or I look at the average time someone spends at the Metropolitan Museum, that amount of time over the past 25 years continues to shrink. And that it isn't that someone isn't interested, but for example, a member at the Modern will go to the Modern Museum and be eminently happy having a great half an hour, whether it's in between lunch appointments or doing something, or as a break from the office, or doing whatever. Those are all the processes. And therefore, in the design of an immersive experience, understanding the time constraints that somebody brings to the process and the degree to which someone is able to both sip and gulp, as the case may be. Fourth issue is what is global and what is local. And that is the recognition that there are things that are utterly fascinating in Dallas, Texas, that nobody gives a darn about in New York City. There are dresses that fly off the rack in Atlanta that nobody takes to the dressing room in Philadelphia. There are paintings and galleries that have a great deal of interest in Berlin, but no one cares a busted fuck about it in Munich. Okay? I mean, those are part of that idea of, under, of understanding who are your constituency? That if I'm the Museum of Modern Art, maybe I'm serving the world, but I'm also serving New York, and I have to be able to do that, that balance. So that's issue number four. Issue number five is a really interesting one, Charlie. It has to do with our access to sophistication and our access to money. We as a species passed over a magic moment in the mid-1990s. Up until the mid-1990s, the overwhelming majority of global wealth was in the hands of an aristocracy. People who knew what they were looking at and knew what they were seeking to experience. And that dealt with both what they came to a museum with or what they came to an exhibit with, or knowing the difference between a t-shirt that is sold at Walmart for three bucks and a t-shirt that's sold at Selfridges or Ikea for, for 24 bucks. And knowing that it wasn't just price difference, it was a quality difference. In 2019, if I look at the 20th wealthiest people on earth, 17 out of those 20 earned the money in the course of their own lifetime. And whether it's Carlos Slim in Mexico, whether it's Warren Buffett in Omaha, Nebraska, whether it's Jack Mai in Chunjong here, these are people who acquire things in their own lifetime.
programs. And part of what that this has meant is that as we try to design experiences, often we have to provide people with some form of education. And that form of education is something someone is often very willing to absorb, but it often is the difference between whether somebody gets it or somebody doesn't. So I just took my niece and nephew to Washington, D.C., and we went to the Redwood Gallery, we went to the uh, National, National Gallery, we went to the uh, Museum of the American Indian, we went to the Zoological Exhibit, the museum that they liked the best was the Commercial Spy Museum, okay? And the Commercial Spy Museum, it had no relics of the past, but it had a program. It sat the kids down and told them what they were going to see, how they were going to see it, and what they were expected to process from what they were going to see, and gave them moments all along the way to reinforce what that message was. I went along with the ride, the tickets were 20 bucks, whereas the Renwick Gallery, which I had a fabulous time in, uh, was absolutely free. And the kids were completely puzzled by it. Marvelous. I'm curious in terms of uh, electronic devices for communication and entertainment, which have certain kinds of immersivity. I wonder what you can say about those. Well, it's interesting, Charlie, because I was writing a column today based on my exposure to the San Manuel Casino in Southern Cal the weekend about 10 days ago. At 7 a.m. on a Monday morning, the casino's 5,000 slot machine, 70% of them have somebody sitting in front of them. 70% of them at 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. Now, whether those people got up early and had breakfast and came to the casino, because they know that they find a seat there, because the casino is really, really crowded. And on Saturday night, there are people not waiting in line for the machine, but there is a certain distinct tension, people trying to find one. And you can look at it and go, these people aren't gambling, because they know that they're not going to win. They are there to be entertained. Many of them are older. The fact that they can sit in front of a, of a machine for three hours and have mesmerizing graphics in front of them and have some form of reactive contribution to it, which may or may not be su successful, but then the measure of success at a modern gaming machine isn't whether you're winning, it's the proximity to winning that you're getting. Meaning that if you get nine out of the 10 things to win, a $10,000 prize. That is almost as exciting as getting the 10 things and winning the $10,000 prize. That proximity of messaging, sound, light exposure is, on the one hand, I can look at it and go, it's an exercise in cacophonic visual masturbation. On the other hand, it is a zen-like exercise for me, and they are making their choice to go there as opposed to going to movies or going to somewhere else. And that while there are some of them that may not have the resources to lose what they're losing, the overwhelming majority of them are perfectly happy to be coming in there and plunking down a hundred bucks, 200 bucks, 10 times a year and have that five hour zoned out experience where somebody's feeding them water and coffee and drinks and Coca-Cola's and they can sit there and absorb it.
it is a little astonishing to me that I can look out my window on the second floor of Broadway and Twins Street, and fully 30 to 40 percent of people that I see on the sidewalk are involved with their school. And it isn't that they're bumping into each other, but that somehow the ability to focus and yet control the peripheral in the environment is part of that visual education that a modern generation has had. It's also the recognition that that device is an access point to a broader world. What does it mean when the internet collapses? When you have a power outage the way we had in New York City not that long ago. And all of a sudden people are faced with having to deal with a bunch of different stuff where they don't have access to their phones and don't have the ability to do stuff. I don't know what the answer is to that chart. But I do know that that screen addiction has translated into connectivity joining Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Just as I need nourishment, I need you know sex, I need shelter, I need connectivity to it. And in the context of my own family, I struggle to sit at a dinner table and ensure the fact that I try to get everybody to stack their phone up. If we have a retreat with a bunch of my employees, one of the games we play is we stack our phone and the first one that reaches for the phone has to buy a round of drinks. It's marvelous. You've answered my questions and I'm very pleased to have your participation in the project. Uh, kind of last thought, curious how your own timeline has been, either from where you are back to where you began or the other way, how it is that you became aware of immersivity and how you've documented it. You know, Charlie, I grew up as the son of a foreign service office where I had to travel and move constantly. I also had a terrible stutter and therefore it was often difficult or embarrassing for me to ask questions. And therefore I often relied on my eyes as a way of figuring out what the rules were. And there's more than one person that have said that I took a coping mechanism to a handicap and turned it into a profession. My story, which I've written uh, about, is I'm trained as an urban geographer. And I used to be part of the crew that would rewrite commercial zoning ordinances for different cities across the country. And one of my jobs as the junior member of the research crew was to install the cameras on the roofs of buildings to record the traffic patterns of cars and people and buses on the street. On the roof of the Seaford Bank building in Seattle, 60 stories up, there was a strong wind blowing. I'm quite tall. I'm 6'4", six, 6'5", six, but I don't like heights. And on the roof of that building, I could feel the building rocking in the breeze. And I realized then that I had to come up with some other way of applying my skills. And a week later, I was standing in a bank in New York City, getting madder by the bank because I realized that this that lines weren't working. And I realized then, just this light bulb went off in my head, that the same tools that I've been using to look at how a city works, I could take inside a bank, or a store, or a hospital, or an airport, or a train station, or a doctor's office, or a home, or a museum, or an exhibit, or a showroom, or a trade show, and be able to deconstruct those. If you'd asked me back then, it's now almost 40 years later, whether I'd be seen as a global expert on fast food drive-throughs, or on how you sell lipstick, or you know serve on the board of 
the Smithsonian and help small museums uh, around the country be able to better understand traffic patterns, I would have asked you what insane asylum you escaped from. But, you know, like there are so many of us who came to New York City as intelligent misfits, and we cast our fate to the wind, and it blew us to where, where it took us. And our responsibility was to, you know, take advantage of that process. Make sense? It makes sense totally, and I'm delighted to have those words captured on. Thank you so much. is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. 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 Immerse.